according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews in uh, chapter 3, where we left off. Hebrews chapter 3, we are introduced to Moses here in this chapter, although he's really not the main point that's being made. He is um, being uh, used as an illustration, as a contrast in uh, these early verses. Uh, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And so uh, we're very blessed actually having done a comprehensive study on if uh, here lately in uh, our other hour in the Philippians hour, first hour Sunday morning and Wednesday night. We have uh, spent a lot of time focusing on the ifs, the four different classifications of if, first class, second class, third class, fourth class condition of if. And so this one is a third class condition. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. All right. Uh, Some believers do and some believers don't. And that's a problem for those that don't. All right. But for those that do, there are blessings. Uh, These are special blessings in time as we're going to study, as we have already studied, as we're going to continue to study, and we're going to relax because nothing in this passage has anything to do with whether we're saved or not. All right. The fact that we're saved is a given. The fact that we operate in our priesthood is not a given. When we are carnal, we are not operating in our priesthood. And that's, uh, that's the big application. We want to be clear on that. All right? So stay tuned. If, uh, if Hebrews is a book that scared you over the years, if Hebrews is a book where people have uh, used it to uh, scare you with these if passages or make you think that somehow you can lose eternal life, then uh, it's good to be here and to get the, those fears removed because uh, Hebrews is a powerful book for eternal security. You cannot lose your salvation. These warnings are serious, but not about losing salvation. And that's what we want to drive home, okay? So God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are humble, that we are not carnal, that we are prepared to receive eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, that the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit just comes alive every time we are assembled together to receive instruction. And I thank you, Father, that we present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And as we study to show ourselves approved, Father, it is your faithfulness that makes these things clear. It is your faithfulness that takes hold of even the deep things of God that God the Holy Spirit is able to communicate to our living human spirit. And so, Father, in all these things, we call upon your faithfulness yet again. Open our eyes to this beautiful truth. Equip us so that we're not led astray or we're not misled into fear. And equip us also, Father, that we might be able to explain to our friends and our loved ones if we have family members that have a, a bad theology related to eternal security. Help us, Father, to be able to answer the uh, confusion that they have with a plain teaching from your word. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we deal with faithfulness, uh, we recognize that starting off, right off the bat, it is therefore holy brethren. No question. This book is written to believers, and every chapter has a reminder that this book is written to believers. And these aren't just professing believers. These aren't just, you know, people that are making a a phony show of it. They are sanctified by grace through faith. They are brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ, as you and I are. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Again, undeniable. They have eternal life. They are partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
And the author of Hebrews includes himself in this and includes his readers in this, that we call this the body of Christ, the church age. We call this the royal family of God. We call this the body and bride of Jesus Christ. We're talking about believers between Pentecost and rapture, right? We're talking about you and I here today. We're talking about every born-again believer since May 24th of 33 AD. (laughs) Since on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended and when the the body of Christ was then instituted, being baptized into union with Christ. That's who we're addressing. Does not apply to Old Testament saints, does not apply to millennial saints or so forth, but it is a church age application. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Being faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. And if you were with us last week or the week before, then I made a big point of emphasis to stress the present tense. We are considering Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, presently being faithful. Presently being faithful. I don't want you to read this text and think back 2,000 years. I don't want you to read this text and consider, you know, way back in the day, Jesus was faithful for the time he was on earth, that he was faithful when he went to the cross, that he was faithful when he taught his disciples, that he was faithful way back when. I don't want you to think that. I mean, that's all true. Don't get me wrong. That's all true. But that's not what this passage is saying. This passage, Hebrews 3, is stressing the present tense faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So the apostle and high priest of our confession. Remember, he wasn't the apostle and high priest back then. The church didn't start till Pentecost. But now, presently, seated at the right hand of God the Father, presently, Jesus is the apostle and high priest, and Jesus is presently being faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Okay, so now we get introduced to Moses. Now we can think back. Now we can think back to the day, even earlier than Jesus' day. Now we think back to Moses' day. Now we go back to 1440 BC, and now we're thinking about Moses and the Exodus. And back then, Moses was faithful, okay? As Jesus presently is faithful, and as you and I presently must be faithful. The imperatives here and the warnings are about our present service, and we'll stress that as well. So there's an awful lot of present tense in this, in this passage. Moses is the uh, past tense. Moses also was in all his house. Verse 3, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. The builder gets more glory. Not the tool, not the result, not the product. The work product is the work product, but who did that? Who gets the glory? Do we praise the house for being so beautiful or do we praise the home builder who created the beautiful house? That's what we do. And so in contrasting Moses with Jesus, Moses is a tool. He's a tool in God's hands. Jesus, of course, is the builder. He's the carpenter, always has been, all right, always will be. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And uh, we dealt with that a week ago. Now, when we get to verses five and six, I want to get, we get to the meat of what is the, uh, the, the application for us today. And it, we apply it today, we take heed to this warning today, and we reap the consequences today, whether we're obedient or not. So Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. All right, that's us. Raise your hand. We're later, okay? We are the New Testament believers that are going to be learning from the Old Testament example as a testimony of those things to be spoken later. But Christ, and we've got to get rid of the was. Again, it's an is. Moses was a was, but Jesus is an is. And again, it's, uh, the verb is simply supplied. Even the adjective faithful is simply supplied. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a contrast with Moses, so I don't have any problem providing the word faithful, but, I, but you need to provide is faithful instead of was faithful, because it's is faithful, it's being faithful in verse 2, present tense. 
So, but Christ as a son over his house. Now, is the house of Jesus the same as the house that Moses was faithful in? There's two contrasts that are happening here. Both, both Moses was faithful, Jesus is faithful. Both had a house they were connected to. Moses' house was at the same as Jesus' house. And that is the first mistake a lot of folks make. Because folks are confusing the idea of a house with the idea of being saved. And saying, well, that just means you're, you're part of God's household. That means you're born again. That means you're a child of God the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. It can mean that. Must it mean that every time? Or can the word house mean a variety of things? Okay, which it does. And that's what we have to lock in here today. Because Moses' house was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle eventually became the temple in Solomon's day. And all throughout the Old Testament, hundreds of times, the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and the temple, they were, what were they called? They were called the house of God. They were called the house of God. And it references the priestly service that Moses and his brother and the Levites provided for Israel in the Old Testament. So, I just want to pick up with this because when we talk about our house, in the church age, do we have the tabernacle? No. Do we have the temple? I mean, even by David's time, the tabernacle was pretty ratty. It was falling apart. It looked bad. He was embarrassed to, to show people. Okay? That's why David wanted to build a temple. And God said, no, your son Solomon's going to build a temple. All right? But even then, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., they haven't had one since then. They want to build one now, but they haven't been able to do that yet. Good thing that that's not our place in the church age, right? Jesus told the woman at the well, behold, an hour is coming and now is, when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The church age has an entirely different temple uh, feature and that temple is us, the body of Christ. We are the temple whose house we are which house we are if if okay so you and i we're a temple but only when we're in fellowship okay when we're carnal we're not operating in our temple capacity in our priestly function so last week uh, let me put the slide back up here we were looking at this about being a faithful one it is the present tense of being being presently a faithful one and then moses faithfulness Moses' faithfulness. This is a quote, by the way, from Numbers 12, 7. And when it's used in Numbers 12, 7, and, and God speaks of all his house, what is the reference of all his house? It is the temple operation, we'll call it the tabernacle operation, the house of God. Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. You might have household, but it's house. It's a Hebrew base. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. Where did that happen? It happened in the tabernacle. That happened in the house. And he beholds the form of the Lord. When, and why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the house that Moses was faithful in was the tabernacle. Okay, The house that Jesus is faithful in is not the tabernacle. The house that Jesus is presently faithful in, the apostle and high priest of our confession, is us, the body of Christ, the church age. That we are his house. And Jesus is faithful today as Moses was in his house. Okay, we got that? All right. So many times that house applies for that. You know, a house, <clears throat> it could be a, a domicile, right? It could be a, a structure in which a mom and a dad and kids and animals all live, okay? And in fact, there's, there's, it's a pretty, you know, so it's, uh, archaeology has studied this, pretty typical for the Jewish residents, uh, pretty typical for Canaanites living in the land. They would have a very identical uh, thing, uh, a three-room house, right? That was pretty common with downstairs rooms for animals and cooking and things, and then upstairs uh, where the sleeping took place. 
We know what a house is, right? But that's not the only way house is used. Sometimes house is used for, as a household for immediate and extended family. Your wife, your concubine, your children, your slaves, your extended household, okay? They were all um, part of your household. Also, house could be a dynasty, the house of David, right? It, it refers to not just an extended family, but then the lineage that descends. The how, today we have the house of Windsor, right? The house of Hanover before it was... They renamed Windsor because of, of World War I and, and the idea that it was not cool to be German. So they stopped identifying themselves as the house of Hanover and, uh, or Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, whatever it was, and uh, came up with a, the merry name of Windsor that they've had ever since. Anyway, the house of Usher. Other houses, right? We, we, we get that. House can also be a priestly worship center. And it's used repeatedly for not just God's worship. Even false gods have houses. The temple of Dagon that kept falling over when, when they brought the ark in there. The Philistines captured the ark. They brought the ark into their temple. And, and they had this statue of Dagon that kept falling over every morning. They'd find him bowing before the ark of the covenant. And they'd have to prop their statue back up again. Okay? That temple was called the house of Dagon. Okay? In Babylon, there was the house of Marduk. There were, these are all houses. And so there's nothing wrong with recognizing that the house of Moses' faithfulness was the tabernacle. In fact, it's natural, given the hundreds of times that Baith is used to reference a, a priestly facility. A priestly facility. So within that house, then, is housework. And Moses' housework spotlights his priestly service it has no reference whatsoever to his salvation has no reference whatsoever to his regeneration to his eternal life yes moses was a believer moses was saved he had salvation he had eternal life he was born again he was regenerate but that has nothing to do with the house where he was faithful and the house where he served in a priestly capacity recognize that okay you understand in the old testament if your dad was the high priest and he died and you became the high priest, guess what? You didn't even have to be a believer. You didn't have to be saved. The, the, the Jewish stewardship was totally separated from any kind of salvation reality. And from the priesthood to the Levites to the, to the different tribal inheritances to, to everything, they were stewards by virtue of being racially Jewish in the tribe they were a part of. Okay? And I think maybe we lose sight of that because we're spoiled in the church age where getting saved means you're a steward. That's what puts you into the body of Christ. And so clearly, uh, things now are different from how they were back then. But when we, when we grasp this, if we're solid on this with Moses, then we can go to our part and not tremble. We can go to our part and realize nothing in here has anything to do with me being saved. Nothing in here has anything to do with me losing my salvation if I, if I mess up. That's not, that's not even the parameter of, of the context here, okay? It has to do with whether I'm going to be faithful in this house because the apostle and a high priest of my confession is presently faithful in my house. And I want to reflect his faithfulness. I want to exhibit faithfulness. I want to serve in my priestly function. I don't want to be out there in carnality, not operating as a believer priest. And that's the warning. That's what happens. So, get past that. We get to verse 4. No contingent thing creates or builds itself. All right, which gets us now to verse 5. And I meant to fix that so it doesn't just pop up on its own, but there we go. All right. Uh, Moses' faithfulness. Verse 5. Here's Moses being faithful. But he's being faithful as a testimony of those things which would be spoken later. Moses' faithfulness was historically unparalleled. When you read that admonition in Numbers 12, God is saying there's never been anybody like Moses. Moses is the most humble man ever. He's the most faithful man ever. Not before Moses, not since. In the, in the history of things here, has there been another Moses kind of guy? His faithfulness was historically unparalleled and in sharp contrast to the faithlessness of his peers. Every time you turn around, everybody else in Israel was going carnal, pursuing idols, 
His own brother, the high priest, builds a golden calf. His own sister hooks up with with Aaron and they stage a rebellion. And so she's going to get hit with leprosy. There's rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. Are we familiar with this? I hope we, let's just real quickly, we'll we'll, uh, look at some of these. They're lengthy sections, but I think we can uh, not read them all in their entirety. Just catch the highlights. Exodus 32. And we'll have some fun with this because this is what God does when he writes the New Testament. He has fun with the Old Testament. (laughs) And he reminds people of what they should already know. But maybe they don't quite make the connection. So God makes the connection for us in the New Testament. And that's what I'm going to do here this morning. So Exodus 32, 1 through 6, Moses is up on the mountain. And when the people see that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, all the people assembled around Aaron and said, come, make us a God. (laughs) All right, we need a God. So make us one. Make us a God who will go before us because this Moses character, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron, you would like to read Aaron and say, stop, repent, what are you talking about? <laughs> Wait upon the Lord. No, Aaron's actually pretty on board with this. He's, he's glad they're speaking up. He says, okay, I've got a plan. I need your gold and uh, from your earrings and whatever else. And so they build this golden calf. And so there's rebellion on the part of Aaron. We get over to number 16. There's more rebellion. Number 16, 46 through 49. <coughs> and uh, so the Lord uh, comes and speaks to Moses and says, get away from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. And Aaron and Moses fall on their faces to intercede. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put it in fire Put it in fire from the altar, lay incense on it, bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from from the Lord, the plague has begun. (coughs) So here's a national rebellion. They're grumbling. And so uh, they're able to do this and they take their stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. What a hero, when a believer will stand in the gap, when a believer stands there in faith, becomes an advocate, becomes an intercessor on behalf of his people. So he took a stand between the dead and the living, so that plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korah. Okay? Then, uh, still in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. There's a uh, serpents that are starting to bite the people. And uh, they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why does this take so long? (laughs) Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. Yeah, they just have manna from heaven. How terrible is that? And the Lord sent fiery servant, serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And these serpents are biting them. But there's salvation. Just look and live. Okay? So the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. So uh, Moses makes this uh, bronze serpent, puts it on a staff, and they have to look at it. Everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard. It came about when the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay? There's a gospel message right there, huh? (laughs) Bit by the serpent, look to the cross. Okay? When the Son of Man is lifted up. So we get that. Finally, uh, Numbers 25. These are all great stories. Should learn these in Sunday school. But then learn the doctrine that the New Testament presents connected with every one of these. <clears throat> well, uh, Israel remained at Shittim. The people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Balaam was not successful cursing them. The only thing he could do was send a bunch of Moabite women over there and seduce them into harlotry. And then once that was accomplished, Balaam didn't have to curse them anymore. They were already under God's discipline for uh, the harlotry. 
For they invited the people to sacrifice their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Okay? And so, yeah, the men were joining themselves to the Moabite women, but really what was happening was Israel was joining themselves to this false god. And so uh, the Lord says, all right, execute the leaders. And uh, accountability there when you're in leadership. So, and anyway, it's kind of a fun story. You get down to, I love Phineas here. He's a hero. In verse 6, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation, right there in front of everybody. And uh, so Phineas grabs a spear. He arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, pierced both of them through, got both of them in one spear thrust. And uh, so the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. There, the, died there by that plague were 24,000. Okay? What does it take to wake a people up? <laughs> you get thousands are dying, and thousands are dying, and here we go again. Okay? And Phineas puts a spear through that and ends it. Says, this is it. So those are the examples. Keep in mind, the Apostle Paul uses this. Uh, the author of Hebrews uses this and says, what do we glean from these stories? We've got to be faithful in our generation. We can't pursue idolatry. We've got to stay in fellowship. We've got to function appropriately as Moses did in his house. And so in Hebrews 3, 16 and 17, we see that Moses was faithful as a servant over his house as a testimony of these things that are to be spoken later. It's a testimony that Moses stayed faithful even though there was failure after failure after failure all around him. We want Austin Bible Church to stay faithful even if every other church on planet earth has gone apostate. We're going to function in our priesthood. We're going to operate as the house of God with our priestly function under Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Join me in 1 Corinthians 10, and you'll see that uh, the Holy Spirit inspired this through Paul to do what we just did, to go through an Old Testament survey to observe the ten times that Israel tempted the Lord in the wilderness, and then to draw it to our application in the church age. Moses' faithfulness and the Exodus generation's faithlessness. I'm sorry, Moses' faithfulness and the Exodus generation's faithlessness is a testimony for our instruction and our exhortation. 1 Corinthians 10.1 I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So when you're talking about the Exodus, guess what? Every Jew came out of Egypt. They all walked through the Red Sea. They all got to the wilderness. But how many made it to the promised land? Okay, only two. Only Caleb and Joshua. Everybody else died in the wilderness. That's important, right? They were all, they all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the, in the sea. They identified positionally with Moses, even as we identify positionally with Jesus. We're baptized into Christ. They all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Okay? Now, I'm not going to let you leave today until you figure this out. I think I said that last week too. I'm going to post myself at the door and quiz you. If you can't get the answer right, I did say this last week and I forgot. I did not post myself at the door and I quizzed nobody last week. So my threat could be hollow today too. All right. But recognize, with most of them, God was not well pleased. With none of them, with none of them, did anybody go back to Egypt? Are we clear on that? Even though with most of them he was not well pleased, but none of them went back to Egypt. Those that died, died in the wilderness. They didn't enter into the promised land, but they died in the wilderness, okay? 
Nobody returned to bondage. Every one of them was a redeemed person. Every one of them was redeemed from Egypt, even as you and I are redeemed from the slave market of sin. Okay? So if people are going to try to insist on twisting the book of Hebrews to demand that the consequences for failure are the loss of salvation, then they have to go back and rewrite the Old Testament and take all those people that died in the wilderness and put them back in slavery in Egypt. Do you follow that? Because see, the Red Sea never parted again. It parted once for their exodus, and then it came crashing down. That's, that's how our salvation works. Okay? We get redeemed out of slavery. We get redeemed out of sin. And that, it's a one-way street. There's no going back. You cannot lose your salvation. Now you can die in the wilderness. You can fail to attain to the rest that has been promised. And that's the faith rest life that is our blessing in the church age. When we operate as the household of God, when we serve in our priestly capacity, we have the the pinnacle of faith rest. That's the land flowing with milk and honey, let me tell you. And when you go carnal, you lose it all. But you're still saved. That's That's the impact on this. So, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave the evil things as they also craved. All right? Take the Old Testament stories, glean the application, and don't fall by the same example because we get double portion discipline if we follow their negative example. Double portion because we should have known better. We had the warning example of them to not repeat what they did. So let's not crave the evil things they crave. We read that already. Do do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. We read that already. That was the golden calf. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. We read that already. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. We read that already. Okay? And you see, this text is just going episode by episode by episode, and the believers were expected to know that already, to know those stories, to know that doctrine, and now it's all being put together in an application. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. We read that already. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Or as the author of Hebrews says, a testimony of the things that were to be spoken later. We are the church age that is the fullness of Jesus Christ, the one who fills all in all. And so, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Fall where? In the wilderness. We're not losing our salvation, but we are falling in the wilderness under the displeasure of God facing the temporal discipline and consequences for not operating in our priesthood. And that's what we deal with there. All right. Hope that's clear. Verse 6. And again, there's my point. All right. There, I can hide it. All right. Hebrews 3, 6. And so again, faithful house. Can we make this connection now? Hebrews 3, 6. Remember, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Christ is faithful as a son. As a son. And the contrast between a servant and a son, of course, is like night and day. That too is brought out in 1 Corinthians. But here now, over his house, which house we are. Which house we are. Okay, now Moses' house was a tent and then eventually a temple, but our house is a mystic body. Our house is made up of believers that are baptized into union with Christ. Moses couldn't dream of anything like that. That didn't happen. Jewish people in the Old Testament, they weren't, you know, some mystic body of Moses or they weren't some mystic temple. They had a temple. Say, we are a temple. Isn't that powerful? Lewis Berry Schaefer, look it up. Volume 7. 
of his systematic theology. He has a doctrinal summarization. Okay? And when you get through six volumes of Schaefer, you're already solid on everything you need. But then you get to volume seven, and you've got doctrinal summarizations, and he outlines in a powerful way why Israel and the church are not the same thing. Why the church is not New Testament Israel, why Israel is not Old Testament church, why they're entirely separate institutions. And one of the points he made was what I said just a moment ago. He said, Israel had a temple. The church is a temple. And just, man, put that on your mirror and stare at it while you're shaving every morning and, and just let it sink in. All right? Israel had a temple. The church is a temple. And that's a big difference. And so whose house we are, which house we are, Christ being faithful as a son over his house, which house we are. This is our temple, our priesthood, our priestly function. If we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. If we don't, then guess what? We're not functioning as a priesthood. When we're carnal, We're not enjoying the benefits that are otherwise ours. So, that's the point being made here. Presently being faithful. Presently over his house. Present faithfulness as a son, not a servant. All right? And all of this is being stressed. I think it's uh, comparable, but you remember Matthew 21? Matthew 21, 37. You know, there were lots of servants, but there was only one son, okay? Moses was a servant. There were lots of other servants, but Jesus was the son, and that makes all the difference in the world. That's how the book of Hebrews started. God, after he spoke to the fathers and the prophets, many portions in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us. How? by his son the heir of all things right so that this this concept was powerful for the author of hebrews whoever that may be he got this parable in matthew 21 and the landowner and he's sending slaves or servants and the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third Then he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son. Afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. This was the satanic strategy during the first advent, the incarnation of our Savior. The insanity of Satan thinking that he would win if the heir was dead. <laughs> Not understanding, of course, that death was necessary and that he defeated himself when he put Christ on the cross. <clears throat> so it, they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, killed him. So therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those vine growers? (laughs) And just throw it out there. Ask a question. And let them hang themselves with their own answers. What do you think should be done to such a one? Well, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Yeah? Keep talking. (laughs) And they will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds of the proper seasons. All right. Yeah. This is like Nathan telling David, you're the man. Okay? Nathan comes with a story about the sheep and the, you know, and the little sheep and the little lamb. And, and, and he get, by the time he's done with that story, David is just furious, frothing mad. And, and here's, you know, the prophet Nathan saying, you know, what should happen to a guy like that? And David just hung himself with his own words. Something similar in this, huh? Enjoy it. All right. So, presently being faithful, presently over his house. It's present faithfulness as a son, not a servant. It makes all the difference in the world. Because when it's the son that's been set, sent, now all of a sudden we have the fullness of what the father originally designed. 
And this is what we have here in the body of Christ, is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And so now, keeping the analogy intact, this house is not a domicile. This house is not an immediate family or dynasty. This house is a priestly worship center. We're going to keep the analogy intact. If Moses' faithfulness is analogous to Jesus' faithfulness, then Moses' house must be analogous to Jesus' house. Right? Otherwise, there's no point in using this as an analogy. And so what was Moses' house? It was a priestly center of worship. That's right, it was a priestly worship center. It was a tabernacle. Well, first it was a tent of meeting, then it was a tabernacle, then it was a temple. Okay. What's Jesus' priestly worship center? The body of Christ, you and me in the church age. As Jesus told the woman of the well, it's neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Okay. So for Moses, the house of God was the tabernacle. For Jesus, the priestly worship center, house of God, is the body of Christ. Okay? It's the body of Christ. But don't think of it as an immediate family or a dynasty. Don't connect it with your new birth in Christ and being a son of God the Father. That's where all those commentaries go wrong. They say, oh, if I'm in the house of God, that must mean I'm saved. But if being the house of God is conditional upon my behavior, then I have a problem. (laughs) Okay? I have to be an Arminian, or maybe I can lose my salvation, or what does that mean? And the Calvinists don't like it, the Arminians don't like it. Anyway. But being the house of God, this is not a salvation passage. This is a priestly worship center house. And we operate in our priesthood, or we don't operate in our priesthood. And by the way, it's present tense. Whose house we presently are now. Right here, right now. Not when we get to heaven or not someday. So it's not, you know, persevere to the end and then you get to become the house of God in, uh, in heaven. No, you are the house now, presently, right here, right now. You have eternal life presently, right here, right now. Present tense. If we presently perform in fellowship. Do I need to read all these? Uh, for Moses, the house of God was the tabernacle. yeah we have time i have a voice um okay uh, do i need 28 passages to prove it to you can i give you one or two and you trust me for the rest exodus 23 19 all right you shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the lord your god okay priestly function you shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. That's Exodus 23, 19. Exodus 34, 26. <clears throat> you shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. I'm going to avoid the boiling a young goat in his mother's milk thing because I don't understand that. Deuteronomy 23.18, the next generation, Deuteronomy 23.18, see you can say in Exodus that well the tabernacle hasn't been built yet, but by Deuteronomy it's been built, now the next generation has to get the same doctrine that uh, their parents had. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, those ill-gotten gains, the, the income that was the product of the idolatry and the harlotry, God didn't want any part of that. But nevertheless, it's called the house in Deuteronomy 23, 18. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God. So when the Lord said, Moses was faithful in all my house, what was he talking about? He wasn't talking about the body of Christ. We didn't exist yet. He wasn't talking about some kind of body of redeemed people that are mystically united together through a a baptism of the Holy Spirit. None of that had happened yet. When God said, Moses is faithful as a servant in all my house, he's talking about the tabernacle. Talking about the the priestly worship center. 
<clears throat> Joshua 6.24, Joshua 9.23, Judges 18.31. I think that's the one with uh, the house of Dagon, perhaps. Pretty sure I intended to put that one in there. Joshua, Judges 18.31. Oh, no. Different story. Uh, but they set it for themselves, Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. So there's the house of God. It's the tabernacle, and it was located at Shiloh during that era in Judges 18. 1 Samuel 1, verse 7 and verse 24, you have the boy Samuel, you have Hannah, his mother, praying for, she wanted to have a baby. Remember that? 1 Samuel <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 7 and verse 24. It happened year after year. Remember uh, Elkanah here, he had two wives and uh, one of them was having babies, the other one's not having babies and it, it hurts. And, um, and it didn't help the matters that the, the rival is provoking her bitterly. And so it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Year after year, they went up to the, the Beth HaYahweh, the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. Verse 24, the house of the Lord. When, Solomon, when Samuel was born and she weans him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bowl and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. 315 is the house of the Lord. Samuel lay down until morning and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli because he dreamed about Eli and Eli's house by the way uh, back up to verse 14 therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever so that's that kind of house that we talk about descendants we talk about uh, the lineage we talk about the uh, the house of David the house of Eli Judgment there, that's a different kind of house. See, the Bible uses all of these. But the, the one it uses more than anything else is the tabernacle, the temple, the house of God, the place of priestly worship. Eventually, the temple of Solomon. When you read in 1 Kings chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, in 1 Kings 6, 7, 8, and 9, those four chapters of 1 Kings Solomon is building, finally, the temple that David wanted to build. And in those chapters, on 85 separate occasions, it's referred to as the house of God. It's referred to as the house, okay? And so I think we're on very solid ground to, uh, and people that want to turn the house of God into, well, that means we're saved and we're born-again believers, um, they, they have to make their case and it's going to be tough. We've got hundreds of Old Testament examples to show that the house Moses was faithful in was the tabernacle. For Jesus, the priestly worship center house is the body of Christ. The priestly worship center house is the body of Christ. Okay? That's the house we are presently, the body of Christ. We're not talking about his dynasty. We're not talking about his seed, his descendants. We're not talking about the children that Jesus will have in the new heavens and new earth for a thousand generations. That's a whole different message. I'm not going there today. But the house that is analogous to Moses' house is a priestly worship center. And that priestly worship center today is us. Present tense today is us. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Ephesians 2, 21. 1 Peter 2, 5. We should know all of these. <clears throat> Do we not? We should know all of these. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, what does that mean? I can lose my salvation? God will destroy him. Ah, there's temporal discipline in time presently. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. 
their immediate present tense circumstance uh, present tense consequences when we fail to achieve our priestly design but no one's going back to egypt we'll just drop dead here in the wilderness all right so that's the warning there that's verses 16 and 17 so don't be foolish let no man deceive himself okay second uh, corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 uses the same imagery verse 14 says do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness what fellowship has light with darkness what harmony has christ with belial what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of god with idols for we are the temple of the living god that's us jesus is presently faithful over his house which house we are in the priestly function of our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. And so uh, come from, uh, out from their midst and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. There's fellowship that can happen when you're operating appropriately in your priesthood. But if you are bound together with unbelievers, if you are partnered with unrighteous, if you are in fellowship with Belial, what are the consequences? Okay. Well, he warned the, the Exodus generation, those Canaanites, they're going to lead you astray. Come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord. The consequence is not to return to Egypt. The Red Sea will not be reparted so you can walk back through on dry ground. Redemption is a one-way ticket. Those that died in the wilderness died a redeemed people, but they died a redeemed people under the displeasure of God. And that's what happens for you and for me. That's what the Hebrews' warnings are all about. Do not die in the wilderness under the displeasure of God's discipline. Of course, you're still saved. You will go to heaven when you die. Ephesians 2.21. Ephesians 2.21. Now, it's interesting because verse 19 does say, um, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That is true. That is a truth. Yes, we are born again. And on that basis, we are citizens. We are saints. We are of God's household. Yes. But then notice where it goes after that. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into what? Into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also presently now are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So we are a temple and we are a house or dwelling. Okay, Same doctrine, same doctrine. But don't confuse the, the new birth that makes us citizens with the priestly emphasis that makes us this house, the, the worship center, priestly worship center house. Okay? Two different dynamics, two different uh, points of study. Finally, 1 Peter 2 5. <clears throat> Verse 4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, choice and precious in the sight of God, we can include that while we're at it, are being built up as a spiritual house. What are we talking about then? Is this a political dynasty? No. See, people want to take it there. They absolutely want to take it there. They want to take it there in some kind of a crusader mentality and we're bringing in the kingdom, brother, and all this other stuff. The house of, you know, they're, they're thinking about a dynasty and rule and millennial kingdom and all this stuff. And instead of looking forward to that day, back up a bit and say, what are we doing now? What is this house of God now? Living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. See how this is connected? See how this works? And so we are this house if, 
if, okay? Because when we don't hold fast, when we go go carnal, when we're out of fellowship, when we're walking in darkness, we're not that priestly house. We're not serving with Jesus in our priesthood. We're not offering up sweet-smelling savor. Quite the opposite. (laughs) Instead of smelling sweet, it smells nasty. All right. A holy priesthood offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, for Jesus, the priestly worship center house is the body of Christ, performing our housework in spirit and in truth. Remember, Jesus told the woman in the well that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you're not filled with the spirit, if you are carnal, you are not the house of God. So confess, get back in fellowship, return to your status as house of God so that you can continue in your priestly function. And so this Hebrews 3.6 application has no reference whatsoever to our salvation, our regeneration, our eternal life, etc. The fact that we are saints is a given. The fact that we are saved, we have eternal life, that's a given. That's not under discussion. But the big if is whether we are the priestly temple or not the priestly temple. Because when we're carnal, we cannot be the priestly temple. And I hope that makes sense. There's, there's a lot of folks that don't wrap their mind around that. They just want to lock in on the fact that the if must be to stay saved and that being the house of God means being born again and that if I, if I don't stay faithful, then I'm going to lose my being born again saved status because they're not doing the work to see the analogy between Moses and Jesus, Moses' house and Jesus' house, and the fact that we are presently now Jesus' house with his present faithfulness as the apostle and a high priest of our confession. It's priestly, not salvation in scope. So, presently being his house. You want to be a house? (laughs) You want to be a temple? Stay in fellowship. You go carnal right now, you're not his house anymore. Presently being his house, that is operating within our priestly function, is contingent upon our being faithful, holding fast our confidence and boast, holding fast our confession. That's what it means to presently be his house if. We we should be his house right now. We should all be in fellowship right now as the house of God presently worshiping, presently sacrificing, presently glorifying Jesus Christ, contingent upon our being faithful, holding fast our confidence and boast. This is what it says here in verse 6. This is what it says over and over again in Hebrews. Hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. Which house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. You know, the saddest thing, it's not mentioned here. This chapter just mentions Moses' faithfulness, but we know Moses failed at the end. His faithfulness stopped. He had a moment, and that moment cost him the promised land. So he went up on Mount Pisgah, looked out over it, and he died. Okay? And the author of Hebrews, he doesn't mention that, he doesn't have to mention that. By bringing Moses in the analogy and then throwing it over to us, When he says, hold fast the confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end, he doesn't have to come right out and say, don't blow it like Moses did. Okay? That's baked into the cake. I mean, that's already, that's that's a given in that context. Hold fast. In verse 14, hold fast. We become partakers of Christ if, again, third class, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Far too many don't. If we hold fast, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Again, that's not losing your salvation. That's exercising your priestly function. Chapter 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What if I don't? Well... It's not about losing salvation, it's about operating in our priestly function because we have such a great high priest. And let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, where was the, the mercy seat in the tabernacle? Where was that? It was in the, the, the innermost compartment, the innermost chamber, the holy of holies, through the veil that only one guy could go into one day a year, right? And yet where are we? We enter through the veil that is his flesh. We're in the holy of holies. We can approach that mercy seat. We can approach Jesus is our mercy seat. We can approach that throne of grace all day, every day. Why? Because we are the house of God. What's in our innermost being? Okay? So let us draw near. Chapter 6 and verse 11. Hold fast. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Okay? And it has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It has everything to do with exercising your priestly function. That you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the promises. Chapter 10 and verse 23. Hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is presently faithful. We need to hold fast. You know, when we don't hold fast, what are we really saying? Eh. Jesus isn't really faithful. Why should I bother? Jesus is faithful. So why, you know, hold fast. The one who calls us is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Get down to verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It's not about losing your salvation. It's about fulfilling your priestly function. Verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. When you're not walking by faith, and you're under that displeasure of God, like those that died in the wilderness, with most of them, his soul was not well pleased. Same thing. When we are in carnality, if we shrink back, God's soul has no pleasure in us. And we're going to die in the wilderness. We won't lose our salvation, however. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Again, priestly function. Priestly function. You know, by the way, we'll we'll cover this. I've already given the fact, I believe, the the recipients of Hebrews were, were former priests. They were former Levitical priests that got saved in the church age. The book of Acts tells us there were huge numbers of priests that were converting and were becoming New Testament believers. And they were driven out of Jerusalem. They could not take part in the Levitical priesthood that they gave up when they named the name of Christ and were brought into the church age. But all the better because that Levitical priesthood gets destroyed in 70 AD. But our priesthood, of course, abides forever. And so we'll talk about that. Shrinking back to destruction, is there an allusion there to the to the 70 AD destruction of the Jewish temple or not in any event. That'll be a fun study. So presently being his house is contingent upon our being faithful. When you're in fellowship, you're, you're the house of God and you have full priestly function. When you're out of fellowship, you're not the house of God. You do not have priestly function. All you can do is confess. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember? They had the labor there for a reason. You could wash your hands and feet, cleanse yourself with the labor, then go into the house of God and fulfill your priestly function. That's what we do when we confess our sins. When you're in fellowship, you're the house of God with priestly function. And so this is the essence of worshiping in spirit and in truth. You can read that story in John 4, 23 and 24, the woman at the well. This is the essence of pleasing God by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him. When you're carnal, he takes no pleasure in you. All right. Pleasing God by faith. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this whole year, Father. I thank you that you brought uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah to a conclusion and then you launched us into this Hebrews class. And Father, uh, we're looking forward to everything that you have for us in the coming chapters, chapter 3, chapter 4, and beyond. Father, the the blessings that we have to function in our priesthood as the house of God. 
the fact that we are priests with a great high priest over this house. All of these things, Father, are just um, unfathomable. And yet in Christ, we can fathom the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so I thank you for these things. I pray that each one of us will be challenged to keep short accounts when we're convicted of sin, to confess sooner rather than later, to, uh, to decrease our time in carnality and increase our time in spirituality. Father, to maximize redeeming the time so that we can fully engage in our priestly service all day, every day, Father. What a, what a blessing. Thank you for allowing us to be partakers of this heavenly calling. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we have a hymn of the month on our finale, fifth and final Sunday for December. You should have a handout.